I thought I'd start, um, given this is a special time of year in another way, with an election looming, in many ways sadly, but an election looming. We're in the midst of a general election, so we've all been advised, as academics, we need to be clear, to clear and stay away from being too explicitly political. Um, so I thought I'd start with someone who is, um, nominally at least, outside of politics, that was, that was Prince Charles trying to stay above politics, um, the little bit that you might have heard. He, Prince Charles is one of a, a huge number of people who have claimed that climate change was a contributory factor or one of the sparks of the Syrian civil war. I want to give you a little bit of, bit of a taste, just a bit of a list of, two, uh, of some of the others. Here's... Here's Barack Obama actually making quite a, a, a nuanced uh, statement. Understand, climate change does not cause the conflicts we see around us, yet, he mentions Boko Haram, and he goes on to make a claim about Syria. This is him speaking to the US Coast Guard uh, uh, Academy. And him and Prince Charles are very far from being alone. Uh, uh, Barack Obama's Secretary of State, John Kerry, made similar statements. European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker uh, has likewise. UK Foreign Office Minister Baroness Ainley. I'm just starting with the, the politicians. Moving on to the columnists. New, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman has, has written several times about the links between uh, climate change and conflict in Syria. Various left green sort of commentators, Naomi Klein, uh, uh, George Monbiot, various celebrity activists, uh, 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 Russell Brand, Charlotte Church, uh, some of you will be familiar with them. Moving on to, moving on to environment, peace building, organisations, Friends of the Earth, International Alert, the Environmental Justice Foundation, various high profile documentary films on global warming and the implications of global warming. The Age of Consequences is one of the, one of the new ones. Uh, uh, Years of Living Dangerously is another one. Years of Living Dangerously uh, uh, was um, uh, its, 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 its first edition was on climate change and conflict, and touching on Syria specifically. It was so successful that they decided to make a, a cartoon based upon it. This is just bits and bobs of the cartoon. Gives you an indication of the, of, of the, of the story. Uh, U.S. and U.K. defense, national security, foreign affairs, think tanks, such as uh, uh, Chatham House in the U.K., the Center for Naval Analysis. It might not be a, a, a think tank that you're familiar with in the, in, in, in the U.S., but they've done a lot of very important work on climate change and conflict. And the Center for Climate and Security in Washington, D.C., which is the, the, the number one think tank sort of trying to emphasize the, the linkages the Pentagon and the Ministry of Defense, various international organizations, the UN, that, sorry, the World Bank, the FAO, the World Food Program, various academics, uh, uh, names that you'll be familiar with, certainly at IDS. Uh, Johan Rockström uh, talked about the links when he was at a conference here, I remember hearing him a year, a year and a half ago, talking about the, talking about the links. Uh, Mike Davis, Michael Clare, from rather different uh, perspectives. And 
not least, coming back towards in the direction of the US and US political figures, leading US Democrats, not just not just Obama, not just Kerry, um, but also Bernie Sanders made pretty strong claims in this direction. He even went so far pretty much saying the same as Charles said in the clip that you couldn't quite hear, saying that climate change is, quote, directly related to the growth of terrorism. And his pre fellow presidential candidate, uh, Democratic <coughs> candidate, Martin O'Malley, even went so far as to say uh, 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 that climate change was partly responsible for the rise of ISIS. My favourite of all, though, is, is, is Al Gore, in terms of the comments he's made on his, this uh, subject. Uh, he claimed in 2015 that uh, climate change was, and I quote, the underlying story of what opened that gates of hell in Syria. And uh, he surpassed himself, actually, uh, speaking last month. Um, he was uh, doing an event... Uh, to advertise the sequel to his film, An Inconvenient Truth, which is being, being launched this summer. Um, and, uh, and this is pretty much uh, what he said. That was, the, that was the headline. To be more precise about what he said, he said that climate change-induced drought was, quote, the principal cause of the Syrian civil war, that significant areas of the Middle East, quote, are in danger of becoming uninhabitable, and that the Syrian crisis led to, quote, an incredible outflow of refugees into Europe, which is creating political stability and which contributed in some ways to the desire of some in the UK to say, whoa, we're not sure we want to be part of that anymore. Now, these claims have, of course, as with this one, received extensive media uh, coverage, and not least, going through this long list, the Syrian climate conflict links, they've also received support from some peer-reviewed scientific articles. I don't want to give you the impression that this is just uh, a thoughtless uh, a, a opinion, of which two are particularly noteworthy. Um, one by uh, uh, Peter Gleick. Uh, um, who's one of the foremost scholars of water, water politics, water security issues uh, worldwide. This, this, this piece was published in the journal, a particularly well-known journal, but Weather, Climate and Society in 2014. And secondly, and this is the really important one, um, a piece by Colin Kelly and his colleagues, which was published in PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, in, uh, in 2015. Kelly and colleagues, they're earth scientists at, at Columbia, in, uh, mostly. So, in short, there's a tremendous weight of opinion, and there's also some seeming scientific evidence that climate change was a significant uh, uh, element behind Syria's descent into civil war. The problem is that they're wrong. That the evidence uh, uh, behind both the opinion and actually also the scientific articles is incredibly thin. Uh, and that's what I'm going to uh, demonstrate today. I'm going to do this by interrogating the main, uh, 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 the main claims of uh, the thesis that are developed in these scientific articles in particular, 
and in the various media pieces. And those claims can be boiled down to three theses, really. This is the thesis in a nutshell, with three steps. That global anthropogenic climate change, and I should say, when I'm saying climate change, I'm referring to global anthropogenic climate change, not climate change through other reasons or climatic variability. I won't say global anthropogenic climate change all the time because it will get my tongue in a twist. That climate change resulted in a severe drought in Syria prior to the Civil War. That's the first link in the chain. Secondly, that this severe drought led to large-scale internal migration within Syria, specifically from northeast Syria to western uh, and southern areas, uh, uh, urban, peri-urban, and some rural areas. And thirdly, as the third link in this chain, that this large-scale internal migration uh, uh, led to was one of the sparks to violence in areas of in-migration, which <coughs> spiralled into civil war. What I'm going to do, I'm going to look at each of those links in the chain, examine the evidence in relation to them, and then that's what I'm going to do, that's what be, going to be most of the lecture, and then right towards the end of the last ten minutes, hopefully, as long as I don't go on too long, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about the implications of this, of this example. Before I proceed, though, I want to make three sort of cautionary, cautionary points, two of, which are, two of which are noted here. The first of these cautionary points I want to make is that, with the possible exception of, one or two, of Al Gore and one or two others, um, no one really believes that climate change was the only or even the main cause of the Syrian civil war. There are contextual factors, of course, all the way, all the way along this causal chain. If there was large-scale migration, nobody thinks it was only caused by drought. There was, of course, contextual factors there. Contextual factors. Hence, one can't simply dismiss this thesis, this causal, claimed causal chain, by pointing to other factors. In evaluating this thesis, the question we need to ask is, was there such a causal link? Even allowing for the other factors at work at every step in that chain. So that's the first point I want to make. So I'm not going to simply say, well, well, of course the Civil War was caused by Assad's authoritarian practices and so on and so forth. That's not enough to critique a thesis like this. Secondly, though, and it's this point here, unfalsifiability, this complicates what I just said a little bit. I have to be honest with you and admit that I'm not going to be able to disprove the existence of this causal chain. I'm not going to be able to do that. And that's for the simple reason that it would be impossible. It is impossible to prove that any two things are not connected, however unrelated uh, they may seem. If I was to tell you that I was partly responsible for the election of Donald Trump, you'd probably laugh. Uh, but if I then ask you to disprove it, you wouldn't be able to. And given that there's meant to be six degrees of separation between everybody, I probably am partly responsible for the election of Donald Trump. So by the same token, I would be very surprised if there weren't some minor, trivial, who knows what connections between 
these elements of this uh, uh, chain. But that's irrelevant. The question we need to ask is not are there causal connections between these things, I'm not going to be able to show that there are no causal connections, but is there clear and reliable evidence of these connections? And are, they as, are these connections as significant as is claimed in the existing literature? Then my first two qualifying comments before I go on. The final one is less a qualification than a comment I have to make, which is an acknowledgement of my, my co-authors. This is a part, of a, pro a part of a project which has involved quite a lot of uh, uh, people. Um, most of what I'm going to say today draws upon a paper which I think is forthcoming in political uh, uh, geography. I say think because they've not formally accepted it yet, but they have said they're doing a symposium on it, including getting responses from the people we're critiquing. So they've sort of accepted it, but I think. Um, anyway, so hopefully this, most of what I'm saying today is forthcoming in the journal of political geography. That piece is co-authored uh, uh, with Omar Dahi, who's a Syrian political uh, economist based at Hampshire College in the States, with Christiana Fröhlich uh, 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 at Hamburg, and Mike Hume uh, uh, at King from King's uh, College, uh, London. Okay, let me uh, let me get on with what I've got to say. Let let me turn to the first step of uh, linking the chain. Did climate change contribute to severe drought in pre-Civil War Syria? Now, the first thing I want to say about this is that none of the existing scientific evidence on this question is about Syria. The Kelly article in PNES, uh, which I showed you, showed you before, is actually about a huge area. I'm sorry, this will come out really un unclear. I should have got a, got a clearer version of it. This is from the Kelly piece, and it shows you the area of study that they have. Their, their article is about the fertile crescent as a whole. And the area in each, of these, uh, in each of these graphs shows how they define the fertile crescent. Actually, it includes bits of 14 countries in addition to Syria. So the first thing that I and my co-authors needed to do, needed to examine, was how bad the pre-Civil War drought was in Syria uh, specifically. And specifically when, and specifically where. And amazingly, this hasn't been, hasn't been done before in any of, the, any of the studies or any of the accounts of, of this issue. And here's what we found. We found that winter 2007 to 8, I'm showing you here, rainfall levels in uh, Kamishli, uh, uh, in, in northern Syria, right on the border with Syria, and Deir Zor on the, on, the, on the Euphrates, and Diyarbakir is actually in Turkey. Uh, uh, we found that, and, and what these plot, I should, be, should say, is an anomaly against long-term average. Anomaly of rainfall against long-term average. So above the line is more than long-term average rainfall, and below uh, is, is below long-term average rainfall. We found that winter 2007 to 8... was indeed the driest winter on record in northeast Syria, in Kamshli and Deir Zor, and also in Diyarbakir. The driest 
uh, driest winter uh, season in, in, in record. In addition to that, the three years, um, 2006-7, I'm saying 2006-7 because all the winter happens, all the rain happens during the winter, winter season. So the three year, three year period would be from 2006-7, 2007-8, That three year period was also the driest three year period on record. Albeit mainly because of the depth of the drought in that one year, uh, 2007-8. On either side of that, though, and hopefully that's reasonably clear uh, uh, from the drought, there was average or around average or above average rainfall. So the first thing to say is that within northeast, uh, 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 within northeast Syria, and I'll show you something else to corroborate this in a moment, there wasn't a five or six year drought. There was a three-year drought. We're talking about three-year drought here, with an exceptionally severe, uh, which was exceptionally severe in its three years as a whole, but particularly so in its one uh, in its one central year. What about the geography of uh, uh, the drought? Did this drought affect the whole of Syria? Well, the answer is no. This is, uh, uh, this is data actually from a different data source. This is from, uh, this is from the Syrian Ministry of uh, Agriculture. This, is, this needs amending slightly. I should say that this is data for uh, uh, 2000, the winter years, 2000 and rainfall years 2007 to 8 and 2008 to 9. The, the other graphs show, which would, the other years would show the same pattern. And what that shows, it shows is that there was a negative rainfall anomaly. There was drought in the eastern, northeastern, eastern part of Syria, but not in the whole country. And most areas towards the west and towards the coast, which is a much more populated area, most, most of this being desert or steppe area, um, uh, uh, were, were not in drought. So there was a very severe drought, but not across the whole of the country. So that very simply is the situation in terms of the, the, the drought in this, in this key period. Was this a product of climate change? Well, it's a difficult question to answer. Those who make this case, they argue basically two, there's two steps to their argument, really. They argue that there was a long-term drying trend, a long-term drying trend, and then they argue that that long-term drying trend fits with what can be predicted, expected from climate simulations of rainfall. And it's on that basis that they argue that that long-term drying trend uh, can be attributed to anthropogenic uh, climate change. The problem is that they're on pretty thin territory, really, in making these arguments. Um, Kelly and colleagues, they only found significant drying in a fifth of the rainfall stations they examined across the Fertile Crescent. Significant drying only in a fifth of them. It may be possible to see, to draw a sort of negative trend, a line going downwards across these graphs, but there's plenty of other ways of drawing the line as well. There's no necessary reason, for instance, why scientists need to draw a straight line here need to see a linear trend. 
lots of people, including Mike Hume, who I'm working with, they say that it's quite typical for in semi-arid areas to have high levels of interdecadal variation. And the sort of way in which you should interpret graphs like this is to draw sort of a line that's here and a line that's here, and rather than draw a single trend. Um, and as for the climate simulations on, 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 on rainfall, on which Kelly and others draw, well, these involve huge uncertainties. We actually know very little for certain about what climate change will do to patterns of rainfall. For all these reasons, we conclude that there is no clear and reliable evidence that anthropogenic climate change was a factor in Syria's pre-Civil War drought. I want to emphasise one further thing before I move on, which is that these doubts I'm expressing, even if they're wrong, even if, even if they're wrong, there would still be a problem with the claim that climate change was a factor in the drought. And the reason for that is this. Kelly, Kelly and colleagues' conclusion, which is the top scientific piece that's been published on, on this issue, is no more than this. Their scientific conclusion is simply this. That climate change made severe drought in Syria and the Fertile Crescent more likely. Their argument is simply that climate change, that this long-term drying line that they draw, made a severe drought more likely. They say two to three times more likely. That's their argument. In short, they make a probabilistic claim. They never, well, they do actually say, because they're inconsistent. They then go on to say uh, uh, climate change is therefore implicated in the drought in Syria. But their scientific evidence doesn't show that. Their scientific evidence only shows that climate change made a drought as severe as the one that happened in the Fertile Crescent more likely. So scientifically, the strongest claim that you can make, even if my, our arguments are incorrect here, is that, uh, 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 is that climate, anthropogenic climate change made a drought of the severity of Syria more likely. There is no basis for the claim that the drought in Syria specifically, that any particular drought was caused, itself caused by climate change. That's the first link in the chain. Let me move on to the second one. Did the severe pre-Civil War drought in northeast Syria, did it lead to migration? Did it lead to mass migration? Now, the standard claim uh, uh, made by Kelly, by Gleick, and by many others is that the drought led to agricultural collapse in northeast Syria and especially in the governorate of Hasaka, right, uh, right in the northeast. And that this led to the migration or internal displacement of 1.5 million people. That's the most commonly cited figure. Sometimes people will say one and a quarter, sometimes people say, uh, say two million people. The claim being that these people migrated, internally migrated or were displaced from the northeast to urban areas, especially Damascus and Aleppo, and peri-urban areas or urban informal settlements around those cities, and, and the town of the city town of Dara in the south is uh, mentioned in particular, and I will I will come back uh, I will come back to that. Now, 
The first thing to say in examining these claims that led to crisis in the northeast and to and to migration uh, is that the drought did clearly have significant agricultural and socio-economic effects. It was a very severe, exceptionally severe drought, as I've talked about, and it probably did contribute to some migration. I'm not going to deny that. Um, in both 2008 and 2009, the UN launched drought appeals. And I'm going to say various critical things about the UN later on, but I don't think they'd have launched drought appeals if there hadn't been something going on. This is beyond question in my view, but there are still other questions uh, to ask. Now the obvious first one is 1.5 million people, that sounds like heck of a lot. We're talking about Syria, population of 20 million at the, at the time. Probably not more, I don't know the exact, what the exact population of Hasaka was meant to be at this time, but I imagine it was at or a little bit below 1.5 million. Uh, what's the evidence that 1.5 million people migrated because of this drought? Now the simple answer is not any evidence that would be worth betting more than a couple of pencil. <laughs> the sole source for this figure of 1.5 million people was a short humanitarian news report by Irin, some of you will be familiar with Irin, um, which contains this quote from um, Hamad al in the Environment Department of the State Planning Commission. Um, uh, referred to 250,000 to 300,000 families, at least 1.25 to 1.5 million, uh, million people. There was no supporting data for this claim. Um, and more importantly, it was completely out of line with what the, actual, the government's actual statistics said and what the UN was saying. What the UN and the Syrian government said in summer 2009, and we're talking about migration that happened in 2008 a bit, and more in 2009. They're the years that we're talking about in terms of migration. What the UN and the Syrian government said, and they sort of, I think they were Syrian government figures, but the UN, UN used them, was that 40 to 60,000 families had migrated, including 36,000 families from Hasaka. Now we're talking about pretty big families, so we're talking about numbers in the hundred, low hundreds of thousands. But we're certainly not talking about anywhere like 1.5 million people uh, migrating, according to the figures given uh, by the UN and the Syrian government. Then there are no other sources that make a claim anywhere like this, no other primary sources, but everybody has, either used, has used this figure and then done a Chinese whispers thing and used it and extrapolated it and... And, 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 and so on. So there's no basis at all for the claim, really, for the claim that there are 1.5 million people migrated. And my guess is actually that this is based on a mistake because one of the things that the UN said, and this comes to, to, to this uh, graph here, is that they calculated somewhere in around one, point, one and a quarter million people as severely affected by the drought. That was one of their calculations. And I think. This person or whoever did it made a mistake in, maybe it was the Germans, who knows, um, in mistaking severely affected for migrated. Anyway, that's the numbers question. Who knows? I'm not saying that the UN Syrian government data was therefore correct. 
but it's, I think it's the best that we've uh, got to work with. Numbers aside, we also need to ask what the evidence was uh, that people migrated because of the drought. It's not just a matter of numbers, but did they move because of the drought? And once again, the evidence on this is pretty full of holes. There are two main, two, two main issues here. One is that there was plenty of evidence that even there's plenty of evidence that even prior to the drought, lots of people were migrating. There was high levels of migration in Syria, including from the northeast, even before the drought. Between 2000 and 2005, an estimated 135,000 people were leaving rural areas of Syria and moving to the cities every year. Right throughout the 2000s, the peri-urban and informal settlements around Syria's cities were growing uh, rapidly, as lots of people have documented. And farmland and villages in Hasaka were being abandoned even prior to the drought. That's... Uh, 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 that's the first thing to, to emphasise. I'll come on to the second thing in a moment, but I want to reflect a little bit on why that was. Because the reasons for that are pretty clear. Up until 2000, Syria had one of the highest proportion of rural dwellers in the Middle East, behind only Yemen and Egypt in terms of its proportion of people living in, 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 in rural areas. And this was because over a period of 30 years, the Syrian regime had followed an agrarian socialist ideology and agenda. I'll give you this quote just as an example of, uh, of that. The Syrian regime also, in line with this, had its main political base in the middle of peasantry and in rural areas, or a very important one at least. And it had pumped lots of its income from oil revenues into supporting and subsidising agriculture. That's really from the 1970s up to, up, up to around 2000. But starting in the 1990s, and more seriously from 2000 onwards, when Bashar al-Assad came to power, this changed. And it changed partly as a result of market reforms, of process of economic liberalisation, which was implemented by, uh, by Bashar, and also because of declining oil revenues because those declining oil revenues reduced the capacity of the Syrian state to invest in and subsidise agriculture. The result was that from 2000 onwards in Syria, state farms were privatised, cooperatives disbanded, the rights of shareholders and tenants reduced, and as I'll discuss in a moment, subsidies slashed. Agriculture's contribution to GDP, agriculture's role within the economy, plummeted. Here's an indication of this. This is the contribution of agriculture to GDP. This is World Bank, uh, this is World Bank uh, uh, data. It's worth mentioning that Kelly and colleagues, if you see what they say about agriculture and GDP, they claim that this change was as a result of the drought, and the drought happened here. <laughs> Throughout the 2000s, there was a huge drop in agricultural employment uh, in Syria. In short, rural Syria, and especially Syria's rural poor, were facing a growing crisis through the 2000s, and well before the drought. So that's one thing to say about the question, were, they, uh, were these drought numbers, was, 
the, 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 however many people migrated, well, did they migrate because of drought? Well, there was a lot that was, that was happening before then, and that was within the context of a growing agrarian crisis, within the context of liberalisation and, I would argue, declining oil revenues. But secondly, on the question of did they move because of drought, drought wasn't the only shock event to hit northeast Syria during 2008 and 2009. There were several others. There were several others. So was drought spark, the final spark that led people to move? Well, there were other shock events. In 2008, for instance, there was a late winter frost, a very late winter frost, which has huge impacts upon uh, wheat in particular, which was credited by the US Embassy, you can see this in the WikiLeaks cables, as the main cause of the collapse of Syria's wheat harvest during that, that year. During 2007 and then 2008, two new important laws were implemented. Uh, one, a new agrarian law, which led to mass expulsion of tenants. And the other, a presidential decree, which restricted land sales across the whole of Hasaka. And this presidential decree has been widely credited with resulting in increased Kurdish migration out of Hasaka into Europe uh, uh, during 2008 and 9. And last and most importantly, uh, May 2008 and then May 2009 saw the removal of key subsidies. In May 2008, Fuel subsidies, especially diesel subsidies, were removed. In 2009, fertiliser subsidies. And in both cases, this was done overnight and led to overnight hikes in fuel and fertiliser uh, uh, prices by some calculations of more than 300%. And these, and for reasons that I'll go on to talk about, had catastrophic consequences for... Uh, 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 for agriculture. So at the minimum then, what I'm saying is that I don't think we should assume that those who migrated away from northeast Syria during these years, even during the drought years, did so only or mainly because of, uh, because of the drought. But I'd go further. I want to go further. Because in my judgment, the main cause of migration, even during 2008 and 2009, was the subsidy cuts, not the drought. And my reasons for thinking this are really fourfold. Firstly, the form of agriculture that had developed in northeast Syria was much, frankly, it was much more dependent upon cheap oil than on rain. It depended on cheap oil to pump groundwater. This was mainly irrigated agriculture in areas where the rains were too poor even to, even to grow, grow wheat. We're talking about growing wheat in areas where there's 200 millimetres of rain a year, where groundwater irrigation uh, 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 was, was required. Um, on the edge of the desert or in areas of the steppe, mass wheat, acres upon acres of, uh, uh, of, of wheat being grown. Increase the price of fuel overnight and the economics of wheat production change, uh, 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 change dramatically. 
This dependency, I've got to say, I'm not just making this up, this dependency on cheap fuel and on cheap agricultural inputs was well known and it was anticipated. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. These are experts, agricultural experts, writing well before the drought and well before the changes to fuel subsidies and price of inputs within Syria. The first about wheat. Most wheat farmers would be unable to sustain production if the government was to withdraw its price support. The second is about livestock, actually about sheep, but exactly the same logic applies. Agricultural practices being maintained effectively on life support by subsidised inputs. That's a bit of the reason why I think probably the, 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 uh, uh, the, uh, the, the subsidies were the key factor, but I think there's a little bit more to say as well. Um, and that is that is this, the, the areas that were most affected by drought, according to the UN, to the area in red for Hasakar up there, was actually in an area of irrigated agriculture, not an area of rain-fed agriculture. <coughs> I've got something else to say. Now, this isn't my text, and you might want that, but I'll say this now, because it might want to come up in question. The areas of, of, of rain-fed agriculture are those much closer to the border, which happen to be the much more Kurdish areas, but of course we don't want international aid going to those areas. And last, I should say, and I'm not, going to be the, I'm not the first to say this, many other commentators and analysts have said that subsidy cuts were a greater, had a greater impact on rural Syria uh, than the drought. Now, the broader point that I want to make here, and I realise I do need to whiz uh, on because I'm running out of time already, um, is that there's, in my view, very clear evidence of a link between the rise and fall of Syria's oil industry and the rise and fall of its wheat production, of its agricultural sector. This will give you some example of this. Um, uh, we see the, the rise, really, from, from 1985 onwards, peaking early 2000s, and then... Then, then going into decline. Actually, wheat production, I haven't put it on there, but it follows exactly the same pattern. Peaking one year, one year later, and, uh, and then uh, stopping being a net exporter one year later as well. So in conclusion, on this point, the drought no doubt did contribute to migration. Migration levels during 2008 and 2009, however, were nowhere near 1.5 million. There was high migration even before these years. Uh, there was no doubt an increase in migration during 2008 and 2009, um, but it was probably more because of subsidy cuts than uh, because of drought. Let me come on to the final. Uh, final bit, which I can take more uh, quickly, because actually the evidence on this part of the thesis is even thinner. You might be surprised to know. And I say it's thinner, I say that with some confidence. I mean, if you have a look at the Kelly and the Glyke pieces, you will see that they do devote no more than one or two paragraphs to the question of whether the presence of drought migrants were, were a spark of uh, of the civil war. Really, these claims and other claims simply make two uh, uh, claims. The first of these claims is 
that the presence of so many migrants from the drought, and I want to put to the side the question of whether they moved because of the drought or because of other uh, uh, factors, um, they argue or assume that the presence of so many migrants, and they're, they're assuming 1.5 million, created huge population pressures in Syria cities which spurred unrest. They simply operate with a population pressure. There were lots of migrants. They must have created population pressures in these areas. Here, for instance, is how Kelly and colleagues... Do, this is their timeline of the run-up to Syria's civil, civil war. The population changes that they mention are only the arrival of Iraqi refugees and IDPs, as they call them, from Syria's droughts. Uh, then they argue about 1.5 million each uh, 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 prior, uh, prior to the, the civil war. Now this, in my view, is wrong on two fronts. First, the numbers are very clearly wrong. Um, they're wrong on the 1.5 million IDPs, um, but they're also wrong in terms of things that they miss out on. Natural population growth, the broader pattern of uh, uh, rural to urban migration uh, discussed above, and, one, and, and a few other ch important changes uh, as well. But I think second and more fu fundamentally, it's simply misguided in my view to assume that the presence of migrants creates population pressures. This argument is, I would call it anti-immigrant anti and Malthusian prejudice, uh, uh, above all, wrapped up as science. Now, to be fair, the second type of argument that's made is a bit more substantial, and that is that the geography of the Syrian uprising supports their claims. That the uprising began in the town of Dara in particular, and in certain provincial and uh, certain other provincial and peripheral towns. Uh, that that geography of the civil war, early days of the uprising, was quite distinctive in Syria, that it was different from that in Egypt, for instance. Cairo was very early on uh, a, a, a centre of it. And that this, uh, uh, that this geography is no accident, because a town like Dara, for instance, had received a significant inflow of IDPs or migrants. So the question is, did the events in Dara have anything to do uh, uh, with the arrival of migrants from uh, the northeast. Well, we've looked into this quite a bit, and I did this especially with Omar Dahi, and the evidence, if it is there, I've got to say I think it's pretty well hidden. Let's put to the side, as I've already said, the question of whether the migrants were there because of drought or for other reasons. But putting this aside, there is, in my view, no evidence, or there's no evidence of which I'm aware, of the active participation of migrants, recent migrants from the northeast, in Dara's demonstrations. Uh, interviews conducted by my co-author, Christian Froelich. Uh, she did in interviews with uh, 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 Syrians. She did the interviews with, with Syrian refugees in Jordan and also in Turkey. And those refugees, she did them specifically with people who had been in Dara, whether as, as internal migrants or as landowners, and talked about these, talked about these issues uh, uh, with them. And the consistent line from those interviews 
was that recent migrants were not involved in uh, Dara's demonstrations. Most of those migrants from the northeast were actually living in the fields, not in the city, but in the surrounding rural areas, living in the fields in tents and, uh, and working, working and farming. There's also no evidence, I don't think, that the presence of migrants was a factor in local grievances. It might have been, but I haven't seen any evidence of that. I mean, if you, they, they, weren't targets of, they weren't targets of local violence, and none of the demands that we're aware of, the political demands made by Dara demonstrators related to the presence of migrants. This is a list of some of the key demands made in March 2011 um, uh, 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 within, within Dara. And as you'll see, most of these demands, they relate to political questions, Governance questions, rights questions. The last three, I would all link to liberalisation. Link to issues of liberal liberalisation. Whether the sort of crony, crony capitalism of Rami Makhlouf, or issues to do with, for instance, the price of fuel. But there weren't demands made about dealing with the migrants, providing them with more, more resources, or throwing them out, and so on. Uh, we conclude that there's no good evidence that the migrants who arrived in Dara or to other areas of western southern Syria from the northeast during 2008-2009 were a factor in civil war onset. So, overall, hopefully you can see that the, the three sub-theses, as I see it, the evidence is really pretty weak. Let me go on, in, if I can take five more minutes. Is that all right, Cameron? Um, to, to flesh out some of the broader implications. And I imagine that this might be stuff that you want to explore, uh, uh, explore more in, uh, in question. I think there's a range of things that can be uh, asked here about what the, what the broader implications are. For serious civil war, for thinking about conflict implications of climate change, for debates around environmental security, and around questions around knowledge. I'm, I, might try, I think I'll try and say something very briefly about each of these. On the causes of civil war, of the serious civil war, I don't need to um, talk for too long about, uh, 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 about this. Um, it should be obvious by now that I don't think serious civil war was sparked or caused by climate change. To be honest, though, I think... In a sense, this shouldn't be a surprise because the Syria climate conflict thesis isn't really about Syria. It's about um, using, instrumentalising half-baked bits of evidence about Syria in order to make an argument about climate change or for whatever other political purpose. The real causes of Syria's civil war, well, we can discuss those. Some of, them are, uh, 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 some of those are, are, are reasonably obvious, but I won't go say further about that for, for reasons of time now. What about implications for the conflict, uh, implications of, of climate change? In my view, there's been a, a very unfortunate recurring tendency um, within Western, especially Anglo-American, uh, uh, political, military, NGO, and campaigning circles across wide swathes of the political spectrum, from establishment to anti-establishment uh, uh, figures, uh, uh, to exaggerate the conflict security implications of climate change. 
we saw this from in, in the case of Darfur from 2007 onwards, which was often talked about as the first climate war. We see it now in relation to Syria. Um, uh, climate change is often labelled, talked about as a threat multiplier for instability. And I think my analysis of this is, is an in, is illustration of how unfounded a lot of this, these, these claims, uh, claims often are. Actually, I don't discount the idea that climate change has some conflict and security implications. I don't discount that idea. In particular, I think the process of decarbonisation has huge conflict and security implications. And the example that I've talked about, partly why I spent so long on the middle bit of the, the lecture, is to give an indication of that. Syria was plunged into an agrarian crisis as its oil-dependent agricultural model ended. And I think this contains an important broader lesson. Unfortunately, it's a lesson which is, or, or a theme which is not discussed at all within debates on conflict security and climate change. Unfortunately, the way the links between climate change and security is typically talked about is, in my view, glib, unhelpful, and not particularly interested in evidence. The central assumption within most policy circles is, that, is this, that we should, talk, we should play up the conflict and security implications of climate change in order to try and get people to support taking big policy action on sort of agreeing emissions reductions. That's the, that's the underlying assumption. I was talking with someone in the Foreign Office about it this afternoon. He said they, he told me they basically made a decision in 2007. We need to securitise climate change in order to try and get big political agreement. That's the reason that they're talking like this, primarily. Not because of the strength, the weight of evidence about uh, these links. Unfortunately, I've got to say, I think I don't really see that that's a particularly sensible strategy. Um, and frankly, I see it as manna from, manna, for heaven, manna from heaven for climate denialists. Um, if, you want to exaggerate the, the, if you want to exaggerate evidence of climate change impacts, and then those impacts are shown to be sort of overblown, that's hardly going to strengthen the case for international action on, 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 on climate change. And in my view, the case for international action is strong enough without resort to such dubious evidence. And then, of course, I think there are, there are dangers. There are other dangers associated with overplaying this type of thing. This is, this is the type of thing that the Syria climate conflict story led to in summer 2015. Claiming that Alan Kurdi was a climate refugee, um, that we were entering an era of a new normal when there's going to be a constant flood of refugees from the Middle East and North Africa because of climate change. Now, this type of argument hasn't really been picked up by the right-wing press that much yet, partly because they're so suspicious of climate change. But I, but I don't think it's beyond the imagination that they will. And thinking of the Syria crisis as part of a continuing crisis rather than a political crisis could very easily pave the way for arguments about creating more and more of a fortress around Europe and around the North. Two final things, very quickly. I won't talk about this more. I'll leave, I'll leave this up. This story is, for me, an illustration of what's wrong with Malthusian thinking. 
I gave you this sort of diagram before. The Syria case is a typical example of a Malthusian thinking about the relationship between environmental scarcity and conflict. And it's an illustration of why that's wrong. Actually, what we see in the Syrian case is environmental scarcities and insecurities in northeast Syria and agrarian crisis arising for political reasons, politically induced and political economic induced uh, 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 environmental and agrarian crisis. And for me, this is a very nice example of, uh, of what's wrong with Malthusian thinking and, and, uh, and, and of how strong political ecology type arguments are instead. The one very final thing I want to say, and then I really do need to open it up to questions, which is about the sociology of knowledge. Or to put it a different way, how did so many people get it so wrong? How did so many people get it so wrong? Part of the answer I've already touched on, which is the desire to securitize issues like this in order to strengthen the arguments for international action on climate change. That's part of the answer. But I think there's at least two other bits of answer. One is earth scientists. Natural scientists writing on a topic like this without consulting social science expertise, without involving social scientists, without collaborating with them, and journalists, the media, taking somebody who does, has a climate model in their work as therefore proper science and treating it as gospel. It's a real problem. It's a real problem. It's deeply unfortunate. That's one of the reasons. I mean, if you chart the influence of the Kelly piece, I mean, how quickly it was taken up uh, 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 within US policy establishment, and also it doesn't, take an, it doesn't take a genius to look at it and see how flawed it is. That's the second bit on, policy, on, on sociology of knowledge. But the third, the final point I want to make is part of the reason that this story has got so wrong was because of uh, the UN reports on the drought. Because these UN reports on the drought, and I gave you the image of them before, they're labelled UN report, UN drought assessments, and so on and so forth. And because they're labelled as UN reports, they're taken as gospel and as a basis by all kinds of people writing on them, including in the media. We should trust the UN. Unfortunately, these reports are written in collaboration with the Syrian government, so they're therefore devoid of anything that's politically controversial. They blame everything on the drought, they don't mention Syrian government policy. They don't mention the Kurds. They don't mention anything like this. They're classic anti-politics machine documents, which present a depoliticized picture of the causes of what was going on in northeast Syria. And in my view, that's a big reason why you get this story developing, which ends up blaming drought for, for, these, for these problems rather than a complex web of, frankly, very political causes. Okay, I'll finish there. Thank you very much.